Well, good afternoon, friends. What a privilege it is to preach God's Word in our church. Before I begin, let me just invite you all to find a Bible. Maybe you have one, or maybe you don't have one, in which case, just put your hand up, don't feel shy, and uh, hopefully someone will come to you with a Bible. I just want to encourage you to turn to the passage we're going to look at today, which is Psalm 73. And I assure you, if you don't have a Bible, you're going to feel hopelessly lost in the sermon. Have you seen the movie Freaky Friday? It's about a mother and a daughter, Annabelle and Ella. They are frustrated with each other, and uh, they wish that they could switch places in life with each other. Miraculously, it works, and uh, they switch places with each other. The housewife gets to attend high school once more, and the teenager is forced to cook, clean, and manage the house. Obviously, they quickly realize that the other person doesn't have it any better. Their life is not much better, and so they switch back. It's an exciting thought, isn't it? The ability to switch place with someone else in their life. If you had that ability, who would you want to switch your life with? What experience or life situation would make it tempting for you to switch? Would it be with someone who is thinner and more attractive? Maybe someone who has their life together better than you? Or maybe someone who has a wonderful family? or someone with wealth and power that seems to make them in control of the direction of their life. This question forces us to evaluate and ask the question, is there someone else's life I'm coveting, for, coveting or longing for? This is the question that the psalmist in the passage we're going to look at today, Psalm 73, is also grappling with. So please turn in your Bibles to Psalm 73, and let's read. A Psalm of Asaph. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked. Always at ease, they increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. 
If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? There is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. Well, I have a very simple outline for the sermon today. Really just three points. The first point that we will see in this psalm is the problem with the psalmist. That's from verses 1 to 14. Problem with the psalmist. The second thing we want to see in the psalm is his path to recovery. Path to recovery. And finally, we will see... Oh, and that's from verses 15 to 26. And finally, in the last two verses we will see the promises that give him hope. So let me repeat that again. Problems with the psalmist, path to recovery, and promises that give him hope. Now, right at the beginning of the psalm, we are introduced to the speaker of the psalm. And we need to know something about the psalmist. Asaph, we are told, was the author of the psalm. Now, we know that Asaph was appointed by David to be a leader in the temple. He was actually a worship leader. He was in charge of the singing that was happening in the temple. And we also know that he served as a Levite. He was uh, a descendant of Levi. But he was very much part of God's covenant community. In other words, he was not one of the outsiders. And so he, when he tells us this experience that he's going through in this psalm, what we are reading here is then very much applicable to Christians today. It's a real experience that Christians find themselves in and go through. If you look at verse 1, Asaph knew about the goodness of God. He starts the psalm this way. God had chosen the people of Israel to be the covenant community, these were going to be the people who were recipients of his love. But Asaph knew something even better than that, that it was not just anybody that God was good to, but God's goodness is shown to those who are pure in heart. If you look at verse 1, he understands something that is very important for God's relationship with his people, that God is concerned about the heart, about the purity of heart. It's not enough to just clean up on the outside. Asaph knew something that even the Pharisees didn't know. Jesus condemns them. 
saying they appear beautiful on the outside, but they're full of uncleanness within. Jesus taught this very same thing about the importance of the purity of the heart. Now, even though Asaph knew all this, he was still at a point of real crisis in his life. And he tells us about that in the rest of this section from verses 2 to 14. He tells us about what seems to be like the lowest point in his life. Now, we have to appreciate the honesty of this of the psalmist. When we don't know how to talk to God about our struggles, God's word can help us do that, my friends. The book of Psalms can be an excellent place for us to turn to, to learn how to pray. No matter what it is that you're going through in your life right now, you can turn to the Psalms to know how to talk to God about your struggles. Now for Asaph, even though he knew important truths about God, he still found himself in a very dangerous place. He tells us in verse 2 that he was on the verge of falling away. Now, why does Asaph give us so much detail about his struggle in the psalm? We'll look at it. We'll look at the specific struggle that he's going through in a moment. But I believe that his struggle is one that is common to Christians. Christians, too, can know truths about God and yet find themselves on the verge of stumbling and falling. See, there is a warning here for all of us. One of the mistakes we can make is thinking that just because we know facts about God, truths about God, that we are doing well spiritually. We need to know truths about God from his word. But that's not enough. Our hearts and our lives also need to be aligned with the truths that we're reading in God's word. Now, the psalmist gives us reasons for why he nearly stumbled and fell. And it is that he is starting to long to be like the wicked. He confesses in verse 3 that he became envious of the prosperity of the wicked. You see that he sees their lives. They seem to be free from concerns that are common to man. Verse 4. They seem to be above any earthly worries or cares. It seems like the effects of the fall of man that you read in Genesis chapter 3 does not apply to them somehow. Verse 12, you get the sense that prosperity seems to come to them very easily. Asaph looks at their bodies. They are beautiful people. They are fat, sleek, verse 4, and they are not stricken like the rest of mankind and like Asaph. Asaph hears their words. They scoff. They speak with malice. They threaten oppression against people. And what's worse, they even speak against God. In verse 11, they challenge God, and yet nothing seems to happen to them. These are violent men, and yet they are prospering. You see, their lives are so enticing. You can understand why, that some people would want to join them, as we read in verse 10. You see, it's important that Asaph tells us what the wicked are like. 
He wants us to know exactly what it is that he is struggling with. And then he, in verse 13 and 14, gives us an evaluation of his life in comparison to the wicked. He says it's all vanity. He basically is saying, is there any point to living a holy life? Is there any point to keeping my heart pure? Is there any point to being innocent? Is there any point to suffering because of his faith in, G faith in God? He decides, as he compares himself to the wicked, that it's all in vain. But if you listen carefully, you will hear the question that the psalmist is struggling with. And it is the way he starts the psalm and ends the psalm. And it is a question about God. And really the question is, is God good? Is this God really good, who does not stop evil and injustice in the world? Is God good, who does not seem to care that the wicked are getting away with violence? Can this God be good if his own people are suffering because of their faith in God? You see, these are real questions that people ask even today when they see evil and injustice prevailing in the world. How can God be good in the midst of miscarriage or child abuse or miscarriage of justice in the legal system? How can God be good when our salaries are not paid for months on end and when we are treated unfairly by our employers or maybe those that we live with? How can God be good when our marriages are failing, when our debts are mounting? And as we look at the chaos around the world, how can we still be sure if God is good? Friends, on one hand, it seems like these questions are reasonable questions to ask. But on the other hand, the psalm is giving us a warning. The more the psalmist looked at the world, the wicked, and dwelt on these questions, and allowed himself to believe that perhaps God was not good, the closer he came to stumbling in his faith. Here's a truth for us to know. You know, you are not going to get your theological questions answered by looking at the world. If you have doubts about God, you are not going to find answers you're looking for in the world or within yourselves. Beware of emotions, which are great servants, but terrible masters. So we have to deal with these, when we deal with these questions, we have to exercise a great deal of caution and care because it affects what we believe about God. And what we believe about God determines how we live, what we say, and what we desire. As we, see, as we will see in the psalm, there is a right way to deal with these questions. And just on a side note, by the way, this is exactly the opposite of what the prosperity gospel preachers teach, isn't it? You know the message that if you believe in God, you will become healthy and wealthy, prosperous. You see, the tension in the psalm is that it is the wicked who are prospering, and the Christians are the ones who are suffering. Even from our own experience, we know this, that there are so many who are wicked who are healthy and wealthy, and so many Christians who are depressed and struggling with money. 
You know, in today's age of social media and Instagram, everyone puts out their best life now on display. It's easy to covet the things that others have and feel that God should give us those things as well. Especially for Christians who God is taking them through a hard time, it's easy for them to start coveting the kind of life that seems peaceful, free from cares and worries of this life. And it's easy for us to ask, why is it that these people who do not know God get to enjoy these things, but not me? See, as we consider the condition of the psalmist, we need to ask, what is it going to take for the psalmist, who seems to be at the lowest point in his life, to turn back to God? He seems to be on the verge of falling away. It seems like there's more he desires in the life of the wicked at this point than in the life of the one who has kept his heart pure. What is it going to take for him to turn? What does he need to learn? Let's consider, secondly, the path to recovery in verses 15 to 26. You see, the turning point in the psalm comes in verse 17. Everything changes for the psalmist once he goes into the sanctuary of God. What did he learn about God? when he was in the sanctuary? What did he see? Whatever it is, it had a profound effect on him, and he was never the same again. You see, the sanctuary in verse 17 is where a person of Israel would have gone to meet God. In other words, it was God's dwelling place in this world. Now, God has made everything in this world. He's the creator of the entire universe. He's present everywhere. He's omnipresent. But he chooses to reveal himself in a very specific way to his people. And that was, by the way, a great act of God's mercy to his people. And that place was Mount Zion, where God's temple was built. Now, in Hebrews chapter 8, verse 5, we are told something about the temple that is very important for us to learn what happens when the people of Israel go into the sanctuary. We learn that they serve as a copy and shadow of heavenly things. So one way to think about the temple that is helpful is to think of it as God's palace on earth, where God's presence and rule was revealed to his people. So when a person of Israel goes to the temple, he was reminded of the fact that Yahweh reigns, that God reigns. He learns, like we read in Psalm 22, that kingship belongs to God and he rules over all the nations, or that he is the king of glory, the earth is his, and all who dwell in it. They learn that God sits enthroned and looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth and observes their deeds. They learn that God will judge people with righteousness and justice, and that he will defend the cause of his people and crush their oppressor. You see, it was there, in the sanctuary, the psalmist begins to see things clearly. He begins to see things clearly. And he tells us that he begins to see things about the wicked clearly in verses 18 to 20, 
He gives us his reflection on the wicked. And then he says, he begins to see the things clearly about his own life and his relationship with God, which is verse 21 to 26. Two things he sees clearly, the wicked and his own relationship with God. But you see, he needed to draw close to God in order to be able to discern what is true. See, friends, in our sin, we can think too highly of ourselves. We can think that we are perfectly capable of discerning what is true and what's false. We think that we are completely uninfluenced by sin or Satan or this world. And we forget that our sin affects our ability to discern. And unless we draw close to God, we cannot know what is best and what's not. See, friends, we grow dull in our discernment when we neglect the ordinary means of grace that God has given us. We grow dull when we neglect Bible study or when we neglect prayer or when we neglect gathering like this in the church with God's people. I cannot emphasize how important gathering with God's people is in growing in discernment. You see, in our experience in, uh, uh, as elders, one of the things that we have seen is when someone's not been coming to church for a while, it's usually because they are struggling with sin or that they are about to. You see, it's when the psalmist goes into the sanctuary of God where prayers were offered, sacrifices were made, where God's people gathered together to worship God, that his sight was opened. And we need to draw near to God through the means that God has given us to go close to him. It is then that we can see God and make sense of this world. D.A. Carson says, people do not drift towards holiness. Apart from grace-driven effort, people do not gravitate towards godliness, prayer, obedience to scripture, faith, and delight in the Lord. We drift towards compromise and call it tolerance. We drift towards disobedience and call it freedom. We drift towards superstition and call it faith. We cherish the indiscipline of lost self-control and call it relaxation. We slouch towards prayerlessness and delude ourselves into thinking that we have escaped legalism. We slide towards godlessness and convince ourselves that we have been liberated. Friends, it's not easy for us to go to God, is it? Especially when we are struggling. The psalmist had a responsibility to turn to God and praise God that he did. And as those who believe in Jesus, we have a responsibility to turn to God as well. The solution for the psalmist's problem came when he took a long look at God. That's when the fog started to clear. C.S. Lewis says, I believe in God like I believe in the rising sun, not just because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. The psalmist now sees, he sees the fate of the wicked in verse 17 to 20. Let's look at what God will do to the wicked in verse 17 to 20. He says, 
Then I discern their end. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream, when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. See, our God is a good God, and one of the ways we see his goodness is in this, that he will judge the wicked. Our God is a terrifying God. He will utterly sweep them away. He will destroy them completely. Psalm 1 tells us, the wicked will not stand in judgment. They will perish under God's just rule. Friends, praise God that he does not delight in wickedness, that evil will not dwell in his presence. Now, you see, as Christians, we should not be ashamed to talk about the judgment of God. Now, oftentimes, we don't want to talk about the wrath of God. It's not good conversation in polite company. But perhaps the problem is that maybe we don't see it as good news. Even in our gospel presentation, we don't really call it good news, do we? God's judgment. But God's judgment on the wicked on the judgment day is something to be celebrated. It is something we should sing about. We will praise God on the judgment day when we see his wrath unleashed in full glory. God will be vindicated and it'll be clear to all that God is a good God. You realize that no one will stand on the judgment day and say that God is not good when they see his judgment. But what about now? What about all the wickedness in the world that goes unchecked? Why do the wicked seem to get away? See, in it, we have a warning. Because one of the ways that God judges the wicked is by giving them up to their evil desires. We read this in Romans chapter 1. So in Romans chapter 1, verse 28, we read, Since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manners of un manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. You see, this is God's judgment on the wicked. And in Romans chapter 2, verse 5, we read that in living this way, they are storing up for themselves wrath of God for the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. So you see that God is actively reigning even right now, that there is judgment happening on the wicked even right now. God is good. See, this idea that the wicked will be severely judged gives hope and reassurance to the psalmist. I wonder how we feel about it. As Christians, how should we feel about God's destruction of the wicked? Should we long for it, hate it, or be saddened by it? Of course, there are times when we wish God's judgment on people, people we don't like, or people who try to persecute us. We feel vindictive. That's wrong. But we also know that we are called to pray for our enemies. We should long for them to repent and turn to Jesus before it's the end. So how should we think about God's judgment? See, as counterintuitive as it sounds, we are to rejoice in it. We are to rejoice in it because it's an expression of God's character. It's God's victory over those who have set themselves in opposition against him. Without God's justice, he would cease to be God. He would cease to be good. See, even though there might be grief when we think about God's judgment, 
as we think about those we love who might be counted as one of God's enemies, it is still good news because God is completely just and he cannot change. And it is because he is just that he will not count our transgressions against us, those of us who trust in Christ. So as horrific as the idea of eternal judgment sounds, for those who reject God, it is ultimately a good thing. It's right, and it enables us to endure the injustice that we see in this world because we know that the end is coming, and this time is short. See, as the psalmist meditates on God's judgment, he also begins to examine his life in verses 21 to 26. He says, When my soul was embittered, I was pricked in heart. I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. You see, now that the psalmist is standing in the sanctuary, notice the difference in his reflection of his own life compared with what he said before. Before, he said, it was in vain that I washed my hands clean, that I kept my heart pure. But now he realizes that when he said those things, he was like a senseless animal. He was ignorant of God. What he said made no sense. He was acting not even like a human being, not even like a person. But then he also realizes what God was doing to him, even then, that God was holding him even when he was trying to pull away. He sees that even though he didn't know that, God has been good to him. See, it's interesting to see the similarity in language between verses 2 and verse 18, where he, he talks about the wicked in verse 18. He says that they're standing in slippery places. And in verse 2, he says that he nearly slipped. Why didn't he fall? He realizes now it is because God was continually holding him. Even when he wanted to trace places with the wicked, God was continually holding him. Brothers and sisters, when we go far from God, we begin to act like spiritual orphans, as though we don't have a loving, sovereign, grace-filled Father. We act like animals. But when the Holy Spirit applies the gospel to our hearts through the means we talked about before, we come back to our senses and we see that we do belong to God. And that even when we are trying to pull away from God and walk away, He holds us by a tight grip of grace. Our God is working all things for our good and for His glory. And He will safely deliver us home. Friends, what a good God we have. And friends, what an encouragement that is for us to draw near to Him, even when our hearts are cold, when we don't desire God, when we doubt God, when we struggle with sin. Or as he says in verse 24, even when our flesh and our hearts fail, God is our strength and our portion forever. Brothers and sisters, let's run into the arms of our loving God who promises to never leave us or forsake us. And notice he says that God will receive him into glory, 
verse 24, he begins to think what life in glory will be like. And so he surveys all that is in heaven and on earth. And he says in verse 25, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth I desire besides you. Friends, what do you long for when you long for heaven? Is it to be reunited with your loved ones? Is it to escape from illness and disease? To escape pain and tears? To never have to struggle with sin again? To know that we will never die? To experience every pleasure imaginable? I don't know about you, but I am looking forward to those things. But what about God? You know, when I was in university, I was living on KFC all the time. And uh, I would miss my mother dearly. And so I couldn't wait for it to be the weekend so that I could go and see her again, to go home. When I got home, my mother would cook the most delicious meal. And you see, it was hard sometimes for me and my mother to tell, do I really love my mother or do I really love her because of her cooking? I think my daughter, Amelia, is going to have the same problem. My wife is such a great cook. You see, do we long for heaven because God is there or is it just for the things that we can get from God in heaven? See, there is nothing in heaven. Think about all the things that you know to, that will be there in heaven. And then think about all the things you can imagine that will be there in heaven. Nothing will command the attention of our souls like God. Our deep, joyful satisfaction is found in one place and one place alone, and that is in our God. Well, what about this life? Can we really say with the psalmist that there is nothing we desire besides him? All the wonderful gifts that God has given us. Friends, family, comfort, physical pleasures, houses, lands, all of them are second to Christ. No one in heaven and on earth can compare to him. Let's consider thirdly the promise of hope that the psalmist holds on to. The psalmist concludes his psalm in verse 27 and 28. He hopes and then he tells us about his hopes. You know, previously he didn't want anyone to know about his thoughts. If you look at verse 15, he knew that his thoughts were dangerous, that it could lead people astray. But now, now that he is close to God, now that he sees that God is good, he wants to talk to everybody about the works of God. You see, it is the natural response of everyone that is drawing close to God and is able to see God clearly. There is nothing here, interestingly, in this psalm to indicate that the circumstances in his life has changed. He's still going to see himself suffer and the wicked prosper. But the psalmist still clings to God. Notice also that his location has not changed since he went into the sanctuary of God. He's still standing there. So he says in verse 28, But as for me, it is good to be near God. I've made the Lord God my refuge. 
Friends, praise God that today it is not a particular location that we can go to to find God. It is not a place, but a person that God has revealed himself into us. It is in the person of Jesus Christ. It is in him that we can feel safe. And he's better, better than even the sanctuary, the temple the psalmist is standing in. And it is by coming to him that we can know God. It is by abiding in him that we can know endless joy and satisfaction in our lives. See, ultimately, it's in Christ that we see God's goodness to us. He lived an innocent life. He was pure, blameless, but he took upon himself the sin of all those who would rebel against God, who would turn to him. He experienced the full force of the wrath of God and died on the cross. You see, it is there on the cross that we see God's goodness, where God's justice and mercy meets. God's justice on sin and God's mercy towards those who believe in Christ. Brothers and sisters, this is why we can delight in Christ. It is because he's good. Jesus rose from the dead, is now seated at the right hand of God. He's ruling as king, and he will come again. And when he comes, he will judge all who have not bowed their knee to him in worship, all who have not repented and trusted in, in him for their salvation. He will pour his wrath out on all who have not pledged their allegiance to him. And that, my friends, is good. It is right. Friends, if you're not a Christian, I wonder if you can see the end of those who rebel against God from this passage. Really, the end of those who will reject Jesus. I wonder if you can see that Jesus is far superior than anything else that we can put our hope in. That the wise always run to Jesus. If you have not turned from your sin and turned to Christ and declared him as your king, then you can do so now, today. Grab him by faith. Serve your soul by trusting in Jesus. For it is a dangerous thing to live any other way. And brothers and sisters in Christ, we have a choice to make every day. Either we draw near to Christ or we trade our everlasting joy in Christ for the trinkets of this world. What will we choose? Let's make the sovereign God our refuge. Our greatest delight, our greatest satisfaction is found in Christ alone. To look anywhere else is futile. Let's pray. God, we praise you because you are a good God. And we praise you that you will pour your judgment on the wicked and all evil and suffering in this world will come to an end. We thank you, Lord, that you have shown compassion to us who are wicked, who have rebelled against you now in Christ Jesus. And God, we pray that we will know what it means for us to draw to him so that we can know life and the delight that is found in Christ alone. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.